Amen. You can have a seat right now, church family. I got to reiterate again, it is good to look at your faces. And I'm glad the masks are covering half of them. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, no, it's really good that you're here. This just brings great joy to my own heart, and I look forward to seeing how the Lord is going to continue just to work in our church family and in our midst, and I just pray that you are encouraged. I pray that you walk away as we prayed this morning. It's all in vain if you don't walk away knowing that you have been in the presence of Jesus and that you've heard from him. And so that is our desire, that is our prayer, and we are expecting God to work in that way. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be reading through verses 21 through 28 this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, just to give a little text review as to where we're coming from, we've been going through uh, ever so methodically through the Gospel of Matthew and um, Last week, you might recall that Peter, through divine revelation, acknowledged Jesus to be the Christ. He was the first to recognize Jesus for who he really is. In other words, he's not just a good teacher, even though he was. And it wasn't just that he loved people and healed people, but he was so much more than that. We see that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Christ means. He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one from God. He's the one that God promised long ago that would come to the world and he would save people from their sins. He, would, he was really here on a divine rescue mission for mankind. And as we will see in our passage this morning, This rescue that people anticipated, this rescue was not quite the expectation that God had promised. The redemption people anticipated was not the redemption that God was in fact fulfilling through His Son, Jesus Christ. But let's read the text here this morning and let's draw some observations as well as some application. Starting in verse 21, by the way, again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I like to read the NLT with narrative passages because it just seems to flow really well. So it may look different from the text or the translation you're reading from, but I just want to just clarify any ambiguity for you. Starting verse 21 of Matthew chapter 16. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid that, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? 
For the Son of Man will come with the angels in the glory of His Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. You might recall uh, a book that's been around for some time now, but the book title is called More Than a Carpenter, right? Josh McDowell, he kind of took C.S. Lewis's Lord Liar Lunatic uh, argument and he kind of made it into a, a, a modern day uh, version of that. And we see that really the, 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 what's grappling, what McDowell is grappling with is Jesus' claim that he is God. In other words, because Jesus says that he is God, there are kind of three camps that he would ultimately belong to. And what McDowell kind of unwraps for us or unravels for us is this. If Jesus claims to be God, then that either makes him a liar, that makes him a lunatic, or that makes him Lord. And of course, if he knows that he isn't God, and yet still claims and teaches that he is God, then he's a liar and you should not listen to what he says because he's a hypocrite. He's saying that I'm God and you should be honest, but I know that in the, t- in the same kind of breath that I'm being dishonest and telling you things that are not true. Or so, for example, if Jesus thinks that he's God, but he actually isn't God, that makes him crazy. And you should not follow a crazy man. But, as Josh McDowell goes on to say, if Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God, then that truth demands our allegiance. As I mentioned a little earlier, last week we, 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 we saw that Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. We, we see that Messiah means the promised Redeemer. This is the, the promised one that was long awaited, long anticipated by his own people. And as Christians, in our context here, as Christians, we too believe that Jesus is the Christ. At least you should believe that Jesus is the Christ, otherwise you're not a Christian. But the question that is somewhat begged for us in our text this morning is this. Since Jesus is the Christ, what does that say about Jesus? Secondly, if Jesus, or since Jesus is the Christ, as the Bible teaches, what does that mean for you and for me? I believe there are two implications of Jesus' identity. I believe believe there are two non-negotiable truths because Jesus is the Christ. The first truth, the first non-negotiable truth because Jesus is the Christ is this. Because he's the Christ, he must die in order to save us from our sins. First non-negotiable truth, because Jesus is the Christ, he must die in order to save us from our sins. We see that in our passage this morning, it it, it starts out from that time on. That from that time on signals kind of a transition right now in the Gospel of Matthew. All the way from chapters 4 of Matthew up to chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus' ministry was largely defined by going around and preaching about the kingdom of heaven. 
as well as healing the sick and raising the dead. That's what it was really, that's what we see episode after episode, scene after scene. This is what Jesus is about. And now there's a switch. Now there's a change. We're kind of turning a corner now, starting at verse 21, because now Jesus is setting his sight toward Jerusalem. He's starting to say to his disciples or help his disciples better understand, hey, things are getting ready to change a little bit now. Uh, I have to go and fulfill my ultimate purpose in coming. What was that ultimate purpose in Jesus' coming? That he would save the world from their sins. We see John relating this in 1 John 4, verse 14. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. How in the world was Jesus going to be the Savior of the world? How was he going to accomplish what the Father sent him to do? Well, Jesus actually identifies it. He identifies it in our text this morning. He identifies four sequential and mandatory events. First of all, Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. It wasn't that he just happened to pass through Jerusalem and it didn't go so well. No, he had his sight set on Jerusalem. That was his ultimate purpose. I must go to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is the city of sacrifices. That is where the temple is. This is where it all began. This is where we'll all end. And so we see that Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem so that I can fulfill my purpose, as John the Baptist says, so that the Lamb of God can take away the sins of the world. The second thing that Jesus says must happen is that he must suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders. Not only must he go to Jerusalem, but when he arrives in Jerusalem, this is what he's going to experience. This is what he is going to encounter. He must suffer many things. And this fulfills the prophet Isaiah, specifically in in Isaiah chapter 53 where we see that he is despised and rejected, that he is acquainted with grief, that he is oppressed and that he is afflicted. Third thing that Jesus says must happen is that he must be killed. It's, just, it's interesting, the word for killed here in our text is not the word for capital punishment, but it is the word for murder. Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of these religious leaders, and then therefore be murdered as a result. Again, Isaiah chapter 53 He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity iniquity of us all. But there's a fourth, a little more celebratory thing that must take place. And that is that Jesus must be raised from the dead. Jesus says, these, all these things are going to happen. They must happen in order to save the world from their sins. The fourth is that he must be raised. And of course, by his resurrection, we see that Jesus conquered the power of sin and death. After all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he goes on to say, then your pre- our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say a few verses later that if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is futile and, are, and we are still in our sins. So Jesus declares very matter-of-factly, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer at the hands of these people. I must die 
in order to take on the sins of the world, but I must rise again so that your resurrection is guaranteed. Well, this does not sit well with the disciples, especially Peter. All this stuff that Jesus is saying right now, this does not sit very well with the disciples, especially Peter. And Peter, being kind of the the typical spokesperson for the disciples, he says in verse 22, he says, Peter took him aside to rebuke him. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, I don't know if Peter was still kind of reveling in the fact that he was just praised by Jesus. Again, he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one from God, the son of the, you know, you're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus praises Peter saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you. Only you, only, you can only know that truth. You can only know that I'm the Christ because of divine revelation. And so Jesus is celebrating. He's, he's selling his praise. Maybe he's thinking like, wow, awesome. The God used me. The God gave me divine revelation. And then Jesus says, I have to go and I have to suffer and I have to die. And he's like, no, 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 Lord. That will never happen to you. And look how Jesus responds to the person he just celebrated. He turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but in, on the things of man. Wow. Almost in the same conversation, we see that Jesus both praises Peter because of divine revelation being spoken and then also rebukes him as being a mouthpiece of Satan. If we were to pause there in our text here, I think there are two points of application that I think we are, that are necessary for us to draw from. The first point of application that we need to walk away or to reflect more deeply on is this. Christianity without the cross is not Christianity. Christianity without the cross is not Christianity. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this text as I did, sometimes you're initially maybe taken back a little bit, like, wow, Peter's just kind of, maybe in in all sincerity, kind of saying, no, Lord, this may happen. But Jesus responds kind of in a very abrupt, uh, very uh, focused, very intense sort of way, saying, no, Peter, you are becoming a mouthpiece of Satan. We might even think that Jesus was being a little too harsh, perhaps, when we see how he responded to Peter's comments, but I don't think he was. And here's the reason for that. Because regardless of what Peter was aware of, regardless of his ignorance or lack of understanding, Jesus understood very clearly that what Peter was suggesting was exactly what Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness Remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had already fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the the evil one came. Then Satan came, and he tried to tempt him. One of those temptations being this, basically saying, Jesus, you can have the kingdom without dying. Jesus, you can have this kingdom. All you have to do is bow down to me. In other words, Jesus, you can have all the success without the hardship. 
You can still rule this kingdom without the cross. And it would have been of a legitimate temptation, actually. After all, when you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his own death, Jesus is in an anguish. He's in anguish, praying to his Father, saying, Father, if there be any other way, if there be any other method, can there be any other alternative? Yet not my will, but your will be done. The point is, brothers and sisters, that Christianity without the cross is not Christianity. In fact, let me say it this way. A cross-less Jesus is a salvation-less faith. No cross, no salvation. It's very common, it's very normal to kind of think that, you know what, that was the one method that God maybe used, but that's not critical for someone to be accepted into heaven. And brothers and sisters, that, I'm not even going to call it truth in quotes, that heresy, that lie, is condemning many people straightway to the gates of hell. Without a cross, we have no salvation. Without a cross, we are dead in our sins. Jesus said, I must suffer and I must die and I must rise again in order to take your guilt away and to guarantee your resurrection. That's the only way. The second point of application I believe that is necessary to draw from our passage so far is this. Even as Christians, we can become representatives of Satan. Even as Christians, you and I can be used by the enemy. You know, we can, be, we can represent God so faithfully, and then a moment later, we can succumb to the weakness of our flesh or be used by the enemy. We see that Peter just identified, as I said earlier, he just identified that Jesus was a Christ and that was all because of divine revelation from God the Father. And of course, I believe that Peter's intentions were actually sincere. Again, I don't think that he was trying to, I, don't, I think just Peter was acknowledging his own ignorance, much like everybody. I mean, what Jesus was saying did not fit their messianic expectation. You're going to suffer and you're going to die? This isn't the Redeemer we've been waiting for. This isn't the Rescuer that we've been anticipating. In other words, what Jesus is exposing is that they've been reading their own scriptures wrong. They've been making some uh, incomplete application to their own scriptures. But how easy it is, brothers and sisters, like Peter, to relate to Peter. How easy it is to have conversations or interactions with people that start so well and can end so poorly. How easy it is for our good intentions to be sabotaged by the weakness of our flesh or satanic influence. How easy it is to celebrate the fact that God used us in some way only to fall into temptation soon after. As James himself says in verse 
10 of chapter 3, from the same mouth can come both blessing and cursing. And as a pastor, one thing I've become very aware of, and I know that many of you could no doubt relate, it's amazing how uh, at some of the most greatest times in my life and ministry where I feel the Lord has just overwhelmingly used me. And I'm looking back going, whoa, look what God did and I got to be a part of that. And it's like, watch out. Because almost the, the, most, uh, the most vicious attacks by the enemy are soon to follow. It's why we even, when people get baptized, we encourage them and we pray for them. In fact, we warn them Hey, this is glorious, but watch out. Not as a way of fear, but just watch out because Satan wants to take you out. Here you are celebrating and acknowledging to your church family, God is good, he has saved my life, he is so great, and then watch me stumble and fall flat on my face. And then everybody looks, see, that wasn't real. I'm reminded of Elijah. Remember Elijah? He just had this amazing, just got to experience this amazing display of God's power and strength on Mount Carmel. Again, a prophet of the Lord, and he's saying, you know what? You worship the God Baal. I worship the one true God. Let's see whose God is actually real. And there's this major test. All the prophets of Baal, over 400 prophets, are dancing and cutting themselves. They're waiting for some sign. Nothing happens. Of course, we see that Elijah kind of taunts them a little bit. And then then he says, you know what? I'm going to build my altar. I'm going to douse it. It's going to be drenching wet. There's no way a fire could burn. And then fire comes from heaven, consumes everything, including the rocks and there's an incredible divine victory wow you could be riding that momentum for years right no no Elijah's soon after he's hiding away discouraged confused depressed feeling like he's the only one it happens to all of us even when we encounter amazing, divine experiences by God, we must watch out because attack is soon to follow. Peter says this of all people in 1 Peter 5, 8-9, through be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. Brothers and sisters, we are in a very real spiritual battle. We must wake up every day, and I know this isn't something that you always want to remind yourself of, but please do yourself a favor. Do Christ's church a favor and realize that what we are actually experiencing every single day is a spiritual battle. You know, Satan's number one tactic is to make you feel like there's no battle. And then the moment you acknowledge that there actually is a battle, then he will seek to take you out because of it. And if that doesn't work, then he'll just encourage you to compromise. But we must be aware that we are in a very real spiritual battle. And if I could just make this very close to home, let me just say it in this way in the most blunt of sense. During this COVID-19 season, 
people are falling into all kinds of camps and opinions and perspectives. I don't have to tell you that as if you didn't know. But regardless of your opinion, regardless of your perspective, may you not be an instrument of Satan. May you not, even if your intentions are sincere, be a mouthpiece of the enemy. How do you know if you're a mouthpiece of the enemy or not? Well, let's just look at the fruit of the enemy versus the fruit of the Spirit. And I won't go into the contrast of the fruits of the Spirit right now, but you can look at that in Galatians if you want. But Paul, I mean, James also says, do not grumble against one another. Or Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How do you know if your mouth is being used for evil instead of good? Well, let me ask you, are you in the habit of grumbling or rejoicing? Are you in the habit of worshiping? Are you in the habit of complaining? Are we adopting Philippians 4, 6, rejoice sometimes? I mean, excuse me, rejoice always? That faux pas was on purpose. And again, I say rejoice in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God, Paul says in Thessalonians. Are we building up or are we tearing down with our words? Are our words encouraging stronger unity in the body of Christ, His church that He died for? Or are we causing further division? Brothers and sisters, we're in a very real battle. And Satan would love nothing less than to cause a wedge and fraction this body. May it not be true of us. May we not be so vulnerable. May we stand firm in our faith, seeking to be unified as one church, one family, one body, because we have one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we are here to worship one king. So let us not be victims of the enemy. Let us not be even used by the enemy. May may we wake up filled and empowered by the Spirit. By the way, that's a choice you have to make every day. And may God be glorified by the way in which we pursue the love and the unity with one another. I need to move quickly. There's a second non-negotiable truth because Jesus is the Christ. And this is our second point Because Jesus is the Christ, we must die in order to be his disciples. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 24 of Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is what it means to be a Christian. That he would take up that they would deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. Jesus had actually already talked about this in Matthew chapter 10, for example. He says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
What Jesus is really seeking to kind of put at the, at the, with crystal focus is this. He wants us to know this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean? Well, let's just, let's just break these down very quickly here. First of all, the first requirement of being a Christian is that you deny yourself. Makes me kind of wonder how much our evangelistic explanation starts with this explanation. Hey, Jesus wants to love you and, and, and save your life. That sounds great. Jesus sounds like an incredible person. Yeah, all you have to do is deny yourself. Where are you going? But that's what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. But how tempting it can be for our own lives, let alone for the people we're encouraging to seek and try to make Jesus attractive. Or to tell people that if they accept Jesus, that he will make their lives better. Well, on one hand, that's true. Jesus will make their lives better, just not in the way that they probably expect or hope or want. After all, as we've talked about before, God's number one goal for us is not our happiness, it's our holiness. God's number one goal for us is our sanctification, is to make us more like Him, to make us holy as He is holy. But Jesus says if you truly want to follow Him, then you must first deny yourself. This word for deny means that you completely disown to give up your own way. It is the opposite of self of, of self-seeking. It's the opposite of self-indulgence. It's the opposite of ask, or answering this question, this is what I want. To deny yourself is to kind of put all that to the side and say, Jesus, it's all about you. Denial means that everything, our desires, our ambitions, our possessions, our hopes, our dreams, everything is submitted to the will of God. It's not wrong to have desires. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not wrong to have ambitions. It's not wrong to hope for things. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying all those things must be submitted to me. Most practically, it means that we surrender everything like our time and our money and our resources and our conveniences, our rights. question we might reflect on is how often or to what degree do we surrender in this way? Do we daily thinking, do we daily ask this question, Jesus, how do you want me to spend this day? What do you want me to do with these resources or this money or this, or this time that I have? Jesus, what, how do you want me to respond to this particular person in this particular situation? In other words, it's not about what I want or what I think. It's all about, Jesus, what do you want? As your pastor, I'm asking this every day. Jesus, what do you want for your church? You're the one who died for it. You're the one who purchased it. What do you want for your church? The first step, or the first requirement is to deny ourselves. Secondly, it is to take up our cross. Sometimes we use this phrase, oh, that's just my cross to bear, Right? And sometimes we might be referring to some physical ailment or maybe financial struggle or difficult spouse or whatever it may be. But that's not the kind of cross Jesus is referring to here. 
Now, the kind of cross Jesus is referencing here is really, it's referring to the actual cross, which is an instrument of death. And what it means is that you are submitting or surrendering your will to God. In other words, it's God, whatever you cause to happen, whatever you desire to happen, I willingly accept it. If you desire, if you, if you, If you have ordained for me to suffer, then I will suffer willingly. If you have ordained for me to die, then I will die willingly. You know, as a younger, less mature Christian, I used to always read through the the apostles' letters, the apostle Paul's letters, and go, man, I want to have that impact. I want to have that same impact the apostle Paul had, right? And then as I kind of started looking into it more, I'm like, oh, but I don't like all that suffering that I had to go through in order to have that impact, So maybe I don't want that impact because the means to have that impact doesn't sound very exciting to me. But taking up our cross means that we accept whatever God gives us, whatever he ordains for our lives. Thirdly, we must follow Jesus. In the most succinct fashion, to follow Jesus means to obey Jesus. In fact, the truest indication of the genuineness of your faith and my faith is in our obedience. As Jesus says in Luke 6:46, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you?" In other words, there's no such thing as I'm a follower of Jesus, but I have no intention of obeying him. That's not what a follower of Jesus does. It's an oxymoron. It's hypocritical. So when Jesus says, you must also follow me, what he's saying is that you must obey me. Not because our obedience is perfect, no one is perfect, but there is a pattern of obedience that is consistent of self-denial and cross-bearing. You know, so often people express a desire to follow Jesus or, or, or a desire to follow him, but to follow him on his terms or their terms Many, many might say that I want to be a Christian. I like the idea of Jesus so long as it doesn't cost me very much. But brothers and sisters, this is not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's not I come to Jesus carefully calculated on my terms. No, coming to Jesus means I deny myself, I take up my cross, and I and obey Him at whatever cost. This is what it means to be a Christian. In fact, we are modeling, in a sense, we are living what Jesus modeled for us. And for example, Jesus died, and then he says, I beckon you to come and die like I did. Jesus denied his desires, and he beckons us to deny our desires. He literally took up a cross, and he says, now I want you to take up your cross. Jesus obeyed his Father to the point of death, and he says, I would want you to now obey to whatever end. Do you still want to follow Jesus? My wife uh, shared with me an Instagram post a few weeks back that I've been kind of mulling over. I forget who said it, but I thought it was very apropos. He says, everybody wants to be like Jesus until you have to be like Jesus. Everybody wants to be like Jesus until you actually have to be like him. Until we actually have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and obey even to death. You see, what Jesus is actually getting at here, if we were to kind of summarize it in one phrase, what Jesus is highlighting here is absolute 
surrender. You see, what is most often lacking in our fellowship, in our, in our relationship with Christ, is not necessarily a desire, but, but it's a, what's lacking is an absolute surrender. And the reason we oftentimes do not receive the blessing of God is because we have not surrendered completely to God. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is asking of us. Absolute surrender. What does that mean exactly? Let me just illustrate it very quickly in this way. It's in 1 Kings chapter 20. Let me just read this first few verses. I think it illustrates what Jesus is requiring or asking of us. Behenadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army. 32 kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Behenadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours, and all that I have is yours. If we want to know or understand a little more clearly what absolute surrender is, I think even King Ahab of all people understood it. All that I have is yours. As Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But before we become discouraged and think, wow, the, the Christian faith seems full of death, let me just say this, it starts with death, but it ends with life. That's our third point. Dying saves you, whereas living kills you. Dying saves you, but living kills you. Jesus says this, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is like the most counterintuitive realization. Jesus beckons us to die, but in our dying, we actually gain our life. It's so, it's, it's so counterintuitive to our rationale oftentimes. But I think Jim Elliott said it really well, right? The guy who died with the Aka Indians, Nate Saint and all those guys. He said, he is no fool to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So when you and I come to the place where we are finally convinced that we actually gain our life, through denial, that we actually gain our life through taking up our cross, that we actually gain our life through humble, surrendered obedience, then we are blessed. Andrew Murray said it well in his, a book that I'm reading right now called Absolute Surrender. He says, the condition of God's blessing is absolute surrender of all into his hands. The fact is, you and I, we all want a good life. 
We, want, we all want a fulfilling life. We all want a satisfying life. We all want a joy-filled life. And Jesus says, if you want this life, then come and die, and then you will gain it. The worship team is going to come on up right now, and we're going to sing one final song in closing. A song that is titled, I Surrender. I've been singing this song all week long, not just in preparation for today, but really as a prayer and desire of my own heart. But as they get ready to to lead us in one final song, let me just ask you a couple questions for the sake of your own reflection. Have you died to yourself? Are you in the habit of dying every day? Perhaps we should ask this question. Is there something you're holding on to that needs to be laid at the feet of Jesus? Is there any part of you that is resisting a full and complete surrender to Christ? Brothers and sisters, if there is, and you watching right now, if there is, may I just encourage you right now, when you lose your life, you actually gain it. It is through absolute, humble surrender that you actually gain the fullness of God.